Good morning, Americans. How are y'all across our great country? It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program? It is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. As I do every year on this date, I never actually take this day off. Uh, as I do every year on this day, uh, I do this. That's right. It is Independence Day observed. Why? Well, because Independence Day falls on a Saturday, so everybody gets off today. The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall see most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evil are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors 
to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual and comfortable and distant from their depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time, after such dissolutions, to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states, for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in any many cases of the benefit of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond the seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us, and has endeavored to bring out the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. 
We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and they have, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connection and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must, therefore, acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that by political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Done in Congress the second day of July, 1776, 244 years ago this week. And of course, they waited a day so everyone could see it, analyze it, mull the words, and come back the next day and sign it. John Hancock, of course, making his signature the most prominent on the page so that King George could see it. 244 years ago, this group of men in Philadelphia were under cloud of war, and they pledged their lives, their fortune, and their sacred honor to a cause far greater than themselves. By adding their signatures to this unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, they became wanted men. Some of them would become destitute in defense of the cause, giving all of the money they had to support it. Some would lose their homes. Some would lose their families. Some would lose their businesses. Many would see their farms burned. Many would see their sons imprisoned by the English. Some of them would die. But they believed in the cause and they held fast. They delivered a unique nation at the time, still unique to this day. It was formed not by blood and soil, not by, by we're here, but they decided to form the nation on an idea that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They gave us ideals that even they couldn't live up to, and they knew they couldn't live up to it. They were committed to unshackling themselves from Great Britain, and so they started pushing problems down the road, kicking cans down the road. The cans were filled with problems they knew they were going to have to deal with. They decided they couldn't address them at the time because there was a greater cause and they needed unity in that cause that was the great cause of the age. The first colonies to successfully rebel against an empire, not only an empire, but the greatest empire in the world. One of the problems they kicked down the road was slavery, of course. Now, there are current revisionists who would like you to believe that the colonies were all slaveholding colonies who wanted to preserve slavery, and Great Britain had moved towards ending slavery, and so that was the necessity of their revolt. That's revisionist nonsense. 
It's not actually true. Britain would not begin a cause for the abolition of slavery until after the revolution. In fact, American ministers in New England were preaching abolition before the Revolutionary War. Thomas Jefferson was writing they would have to deal with the issue. Thomas Jefferson, a slave owner, wrote that they would have to deal with slavery. They would have to end slavery. Many of the other founding fathers agreed, but they decided that it was better to wait until they had independence from Britain, lest they lose some of the states dependent on slavery that were necessary in the fight. And when they got together after the war and they began restructuring the government and finally forged the Constitution, they put in the three-fifths compromise that limited the power of slaveholding states and the Electoral College that minimized their power in picking the president. These were compromises against slavery, not for slavery, and the revisionists would lie and tell you otherwise. There are a lot of Americans right now who want to rewrite our founding history. They lack the courage and character of our founders. They won't start a revolution. They won't move somewhere to the more suiting, and, and they won't pledge their lives, their fortune, or their sacred honor to their cause. They just want to whine. They're whiny children who tear down statues like religious fundamentalists, rebels without causes, zealots without clues. The founding of our nation happened within 88 years of the English Glorious Revolution, where their grandfathers were willing to fight for their rights. They established the English Bill of Rights. Our founders, like their grandparents, were willing to lay down their lives for their rights too. They were actually engaged in a conservative revolution where they believed they were already entitled to the English Bill of Rights and they wanted those rights as Englishmen. And when they realized that the British no longer treated them as Englishmen, but as inferior colonists, though their blood was English and their grandfathers had fought for the glorious revolution, they wanted a revolution to get their rights back, not to get something new. It was not like the French Revolution where the French wanted to throw off the old regime in favor of something new that they thought they could build better where the revolution turned on the revolutionaries. No, our revolutionaries decided to get together afterwards and enshrine in their new government a bill of rights that echoed the rights they believed they were entitled to but denied by the king. And they gave us a union forged by imperfect men that is still not perfect and that will never be perfect. But in that founding 244 years ago this week, they gave us an ideal to look towards. Never perfect, but always in pursuit of perfection, always rushing towards the sunrise of a better tomorrow. The founders weren't bad, they weren't evil. They were flawed and they knew it. And they created a government that balanced the flaws of people against each other through a system of powers, checks and balances on the power of men. They were willing to lay down their lives in pursuit of this country, and many of the people tearing down statues scream at the sight of a earplug they think is a bullet. They were willing to pledge their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor in pursuit of the ideal that is America. Where are men like that today? We need them. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is for, uh, nope, wrong one. 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, you know, the protesters now, they, they've set their sights, as I mentioned yesterday, along with the, the New York Times, on, of all things, Mount Rushmore. They were perfectly fine with Mount Rushmore until Donald Trump became president, which kind of gives you the lie to this. They were perfectly fine with all of this stuff until Donald Trump became president. And now suddenly it is grievance mongering galore by a lot of these people. 
Mike Lee took to the floor of the Senate yesterday uh, and had a few choice words about this stuff. What's happening here? This is the United States Senate. Just so everyone is clear about uh, the bat guano inspired insanity that we just witnessed. I just proposed a non-binding resolution condemning mob violence and Senate Democrats objected. I don't know whether to be outraged or embarrassed for them. This isn't even a bill. It's just a statement that says mob violence is bad. That Democrats can't say mob violence is bad without simultaneously taking a jab at the President of the United States. By the way, what, what about the mayor of Seattle? What about the city council of Minneapolis? What about countless other people who have perpetuated or enabled or facilitated or coddled mob violence across the country? It's one of the reasons why we're not going to engage in this uh, the, 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 this task of making it a pol political tit-for-tat. It's not that. You can't really oppose this, it seems to me, without being on the side of the mobs, of mob violence, of mob mentality, of cruel, cruelty and intolerance and terror. Now we understand what this resolution is about. I don't think one can oppose this without being comfortable with those things. These mobs are not progressive. These mobs are not enlightened. These not mobs are not edgy. They're not hip. They're fraud. They're dim-witted, phony drama addicts. Mr. President, uh, parliamentary inquiry, is this line not in direct violation of Rule 19? The chair concludes that pointing out that mob violence is dangerous to our nation is not contrary to Rule 19 or any other rule the, of the Senate. Further parliamentary inquiry, it's not a question of mob violence. The question is that imputing to members who did not agree with the framework and language of this resolution that they are supporting mob violence. That must be in violation of Rule 19 if this is going to be a deliberative body. <laughs> the senator is more than entitled to express his views in the course of debate. But other senators will likewise express their views in the course of debate. Failed by an education system and addled by a social media culture that taught them to be victims instead of citizens. A privileged, self-absorbed crime syndicate with participation trophy graduate degrees trying to find meaning in empty lives by destroying things that other Americans have spent honest, productive lives building. And today we learned, today we learned that there are those who are comfortable with this. There are those who are at least not inclined to vote for this resolution, which simply condemns mob violence. It really is remarkable. Uh, that, that's Mike Lee. Uh, I forget who the, the, the senator was who objected. I, I forget which one it was, but the senator objecting. I mean, all, all Mike Lee wanted the Senate to vote on was a statement that mob violence is wrong and the Democrats refused. They refused to do it. And, oh, Wow. Wow. Here we are. And by the way, Lee is right about the, the failures of the American educational system. He is genuinely uh, accurate on that. Our public education system has failed at its basic job of educated Americans. Uh, and, and to the extent that it indoctrinates anyone, it indoctrinates them against this country these days. 
fueling their grievances, a bunch of white liberals going into education to teach kids how bad this country is. Uh, Mike Lee is right. And the Democrats of the Senate could not simply stand up and say mob violence is wrong. You remember that this year. Remember that always. Welcome. The full number. You want to be a part of the program? 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. It turns out hydroxychloroquine works. Surprise. President was right. It, it is amazing how politicized the media made these things. Now, you, you need to understand uh, the study. Uh, the study comes from, uh, let's see, it's the Henry Ford uh, Health, yes, uh, Henry Ford Health Systems in uh, Michigan. Their study shows that hydroxychloroquine helps lower the death rate of COVID-19 patients. The study analyzed 2,541 patients hospitalized among the System 6 hospitals between March 10th and May 2nd and found 13% of those treated with hydroxychloroquine died, while 26% of those who did not receive the drug died. Among all the patients in the study, there was an overall in-hospital mortality rate of 18%, and those who died had underlying conditions that put them at greater risk. Globally, the mortality rate for hospital patients is between 10 and 30%, and it's 58% among those in intensive care with a ventilator. Now, what do we know? Patients with a median age of 64 were among those analyzed, with 51% men, 56% African-American. Roughly 82% of the patients began receiving hydroxychloroquine within 24 hours and 91% within 48 hours. That appears to be a potential key to the success. We attribute our findings that differ from other studies to early treatment and part of a combination of interventions that were done in support of care. Other studies included different populations or were not peer-reviewed. Our dosing also differed from other studies, not showing a benefit of the drug. We also found that using steroids early in the infection associated with a risk reduction in mortality. Now, he said, don't extrapolate too much, but the study found about 20% of patients treated with a combination of hydroxychloroquine and erythromycin died, and 22% who were treated with erythromycin alone compared with 26% of patients who died after not being treated with either medication. Now, what does all of this mean? Um, It means that if you, this study, like a lot of other studies the media chose to ignore, show that if you can get hydroxychloroquine into a patient very quickly, uh, when they come into a hospital, begin a treatment with hydroxychloroquine and erythromycin uh, and steroids early, it improves their chances of survival. Uh, If you wait too long, uh, then you got problems. Hydroxychloroquine has not been shown uh, when when you get into ICU or on a ventilator, it doesn't actually show that, um, that there's any benefit to it. But, but, um, you, you do show that you get it in early. It actually has a benefit. Um, it's interesting. CNN referred to it as controversial. A controversial, the drug hydroxychloroquine is controversial. Who made it controversial? Who made the drug controversial? It wasn't, it wasn't Donald Trump who made it controversial. It was the media that made it controversial because they needed to get the president. They needed to own the president. The media misled people. 
got to own the president. Now, here's what you need to know. We got 126,000 people dead from the virus, 2.7 million cases reported, and they're on the rise. Uh, New York and New Jersey uh, were bragging that they had contained it when southern states were not, and New York and New Jersey, uh, it is on the rise there. It is spiraling in New York and New Jersey. In southern states, it's gotten bad enough. The governor of Texas has ordered people to wear a mask. Y'all, I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm going to make some of you mad now. You know, it's never a radio show host's intention to make his audience mad, but I'm going to make some of you mad now. The men who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to come together and set aside their differences and forge a new nation founded on the idea of liberty would be appalled at a bunch of people hiding behind the idea of liberty for their selfishness against a civic duty to protect this country. There are times when in this country there are those who would urge you to abandon your independence and individual liberty for the greater good when they want to produce and push ideas that are antithetical to the idea of this country. There are people who would put upon you for political motivation ideas and ideals that are antithetical to what our founders believed. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so I get the reluctance and hesitation when the people come calling and saying, do this. And let's be real honest here. The media have been absolute, just just nonsensical about this stuff. I, I don't blame people for their skepticism. I don't. Uh, because, I mean, first they said don't wear a mask. And then they said wear a mask. And then they said uh, you don't need to wear a mask uh, when you're out by yourself. And now wear a mask while you're out by yourself. And uh, you don't need to wear a mask if you're socially distancing. And now wear a mask if you're socially distancing. Now wear a mask on the beach. There's no evidence that anybody on the beach is transmitting the virus. So I get it. I, I, I get it. But hiding behind the idea of, of your liberty, uh, when we do know at this point that if you're in crowds, particularly in places with poor ventilation, uh, wear a mask and you'll be good. You'll at least reduce getting it. You'll reduce spreading it if you have it and don't know it. I, we're reaching a, and by the way, as an aside here, let me, let me talk about this very seriously. Oh, if you're mad at me now, stick around till 10 o'clock. Uh, then you'll be really happy with me. Uh, when we talk about these idiots out there protesting and tearing down statues. Uh, but right now, uh, let me, let me deal with you people. <laughs> I'm fed up with all of you. This is why I need a vacation. I'm going on vacation. You can rest easy. Um, you know, I wonder, so let, let, let me back up. You, you know, in, tw in 2016, 
the media would have us believe that the Russians stole the election and the media would have us believe that the Russians stole the election because Hillary Clinton was such a terrible candidate and failed in so many ways to run a successful campaign. And the media had built her up so much, the media couldn't disown her. They couldn't acknowledge she was actually a terrible candidate and, and not a great person, that instead it had to be the Russians stole the election. And they concocted a mythology, but the mythology was premised on a kernel of truth. The Russians were engaged in a psychological warfare campaign against the American people on social media. The purpose was not to get Donald Trump elected. The purpose was to have us at each other's throat. And they won. I mean, it, it totally worked. Yeah, And you've got the media that refuses to tell the, the, the full story because the media is so invested in the narrative that the Russians stole the election because one, they hate Donald Trump, and two, they can't admit that Hillary Clinton actually lost because she's a bad candidate. So it, it's got to be that the Russians stole the election, not that the Russians wanted to set each other's throat. The Russians were not just holding pro-Donald Trump rallies or, or trying to get people online to show up at pro-Donald Trump rallies. The Russians were actually holding pro-Hillary Clinton rallies too. And the media rarely wants to tell you that, but it's in the Mueller report. If the Russians have been that successful in 2016, getting us divided that badly and stirring up the media, is any of this that we're seeing right now in the country related to that? Because it's not like they abandoned it. You know, you go back to the, the Soviet archives of 1983, 1984. They had entire psychological warfare plans where they concluded they couldn't actually beat the United States in a war, but they could divide us against each other. And they began funding movements in this country, including the environmentalist movement and others. You know why so many environmentalists in this country are Marxists? It's because many of them are old people who were funded by the Soviets in the 1980s and they held on. Are they doing that with us here? Because every day now, I get emails from people who have discovered uh, experts on, on YouTube who tell them exactly what they want to hear and tell you how everyone you don't like is wrong. And I get these emails from people all the time. I got one person who shared a bunch of studies about masks, the, the inefficiency and ineffectiveness of masks. I've never heard of the doctor who did it. And virtually any doctor I've talked to, including the experts I've interviewed on this program, and by the way, we're going to have the CDC director here at the end of the show say, no, actually, that that guy is misreading data. And many of these studies that he's sharing have been debunked. And some of the studies, by the way, aren't even real. At the same time, though, well, I think there are those who are stirring up a sentiment on the right about masks. There are those who are stirring up a sentiment on the left against you. Look at the reaction of the media to the small business owners who wanted to reopen and find a path forward as opposed to staying home. It is almost as if there was someone behind the scenes pulling the strings of the media. And I'm not even talking about the Democratic Party here, which I could see them doing because they want the economy crashed for the president. But it's almost as if behind the scenes there were people whispering in the ear of the media that, no, no, uh, you need to shame these small business owners and keep people home. We can't have people out. And whispering in the ear on the other side of, no, no, you need to get out. The media's out to get you. Uh, you, you, need to, you need to stop this. I mean, People are really at each other's throat. That's that that's that's bizarre to me that we are this divided on an issue that shouldn't be political of whether or not uh, you should use masks in public. And part of that as well, 
if I want to be really honest about it, part of it as well is that uh, nobody trusts the institutions of this country anymore. You, you don't know who's telling you the truth anymore, and it really depends on whether your team is in charge of the government. But, you know, honestly, one of the most bizarre things here is that um, the Republicans control the government now. They control the executive. It is the executive branch telling people to wear masks, and and it's somehow a leftist plot. I That I don't understand. Something is is broken, and, and I wonder. And you know, it, it the the Chinese saw the Russians successfully exploited in 2016. I bet the Chinese are involved as well. There, there's got to be an effort here. Who, for example, funds Black Lives Matter, the organization, an organization that is explicitly Marxist? Who funds that organization? A bunch of white liberals, and who else? But who is also propping up the doctors? on social media who are directly contradicting uh, global health experts and and getting you to ignore your own eyes. I mean, take a trip. Well, you can't take a trip to Slovenia because we're Americans and we can't get the virus under control. But, in, you know, in Slovenia, everybody's been wearing masks. Schools are reopened. Everything's reopened there now. Taiwan is the same. Singapore's the same. And, you know, they're not seeing a, a spread of the virus anymore. They were seeing what we were seeing until they imposed mandatory masks. Now, is there something different in those countries than here other than the mask? I don't know what it is, but it's amazing how you get on some of these videos and these fringe sites out there, and they don't want you to see that. They don't want you to believe it. They want you to believe the data is wrong there. It's very weird, and I'm just I'm starting to think, you know, if the Russians are engaged in the psychological warfare in this country, they're not just working on the left. They're working on the right, too. And and you're, we got voices. And listen, Washington is is full of people who are willing to take money under the table to advance certain talking points. And I, w- I would be curious to know how many people on the left and the right in Washington who are regularly going on TV and mouthing off are getting money under the table to advance a particular agenda on this stuff. It would not surprise me at this point. I am highly skeptical. Um, and, and in Texas... The governor of Texas has made mandatory mask wearing. You know, in, in Georgia, Governor Kemp is not making it mandatory, uh, nor is Ron DeSantis in Florida, but both of them now are saying, look, we're not going to have football if you people don't wear masks. In Texas, the governor just made it mandatory. You're in public, you're going to wear a mask. It's a little bit ridiculous if we're honest about it, because if you're in public and no one's around, why should you have to wear a mask? But at the same time, People weren't doing what they needed to do to be responsible, and the virus is going out of control again in Texas. Hospitalizations are starting to rise in Texas. Deaths are about a two-week lag. We're probably going to see those start going. In fact, in some places, we are seeing them go back up. And so the question ultimately is, do we do what we need to do to preserve our union, something as mundane as wearing a mask in public? Or do we just just dig our heels in and say, nope, you can't make me? And a lot of people say, nope, you can't make me. And I understand their distrust of the system, of the experts, of the institutions and everything. But I tend to trust the data of the countries that are our allies that have imposed mandatory mask wearing and are now seeing the virus go away. Well, we can't get our act together in this country. That, that, that is the most striking thing to me. 
the absolute failure of institutions in this country, not just the failure of institutions, but the failure of the politicians to accept responsibility and to build trust with the public. And that's on both sides. It's not partisan. It's not about Trump. The Democrats are doing it as well. And no one seems to be paying attention to any of that. Well, I've gone off the rails completely on all the stuff I was going to talk about. How about we talk about uh, lesbian Jesus? Uh, th- these sorts of things infuriate me. Um, and, and again, uh, th- this is about uh, courage. So uh, Michael Jackson's daughter, let's see if I get this right. Michael Jackson's daughter um, is intent on being in some sort of movie where uh, allegedly is going to be portray Jesus as a lesbian. Um, she's been tapped to play the role of Jesus alongside Bella Thorne and Gavin Rossdale, a singer. Uh, Habit will follow a street party party girl with a Jesus fetish who gets mixed up in a violent drug deal and finds a possible way out by masquerading as a nun. Um, The story has been blown out of proportion, says the producer of the film. In fact, Paris appears in a fantasy moment that Bella has in the film where Bella has a vision of her mother played by Paris dressed as Jesus. In response to another tweet asking if Jackson does in fact play a lesbian Jesus, the producer said it's absolute nonsense. Um, and oh man, uh, have they fired it up? Okay. Here's a thing here. Here, here, here's the thing. They never do this to Muhammad, regardless of, of the merits or, or the claims or the grounds. They would never do this to Muhammad. You know, can we be honest here? Um, the terrorists actually did win when they stormed into the Charlie Hebdo offices in Paris and they killed all those people for daring to to mock Muhammad on the pages of that newspaper, the terrorists won. When's the last time you've seen anyone dare to mock Muhammad? The terrorists won. They'll mock Jesus, but they won't do it to Muhammad. The terrorists won. And by the way, that's the same reason that that cancel culture has been so emboldened to come out and destroy lives. A Boeing executive this morning uh, has just resigned for, in 1987, writing a paper uh, against the idea of of women in the military. So he has resigned for writing something in 1987. The terrorists are winning again. You know the difference between the radical left mob that is engaged in cancel culture right now and the the terrorists who walked into Charlie Hebdo? It's death. That's it. Death. That that that's the dividing line. Uh the terrorists of the left want to go in and destroy people and institutions, destroy their lives, ruin families, drive people out of polite society, uh, cancel people so you never hear from them again uh, without actually killing them. The Charlie Hebdo terrorists killed people to shut them up. Uh, the left in this country just makes people so radioactive. Uh, but but otherwise, I mean, what? what I, in all honesty, I, I have a hard time seeing the difference between them. And until someone stands up to him, 
the left mob is winning. I mean, and that that is ultimately it. It's hard to stand up to people when you are unarmed and, and they have guns and kill you. But uh, people who have the courage of their convictions should stand up against this left-wing mob that is coming to try to destroy people. It is, it is antithetical to the spirit of the United States that people uh, should have no forgiveness. They should be impugned because of their family relations or things they did 30, 40 years ago. People grow up. People do grow up. People's views do evolve. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with opposing women in combat. I still do. I, I do not think that uh, we should have women in combat in this country. I think the men in the nation should step up and defend the country. I know, horrible for me to say, isn't it? The What the left is doing is they're getting people to think very carefully about saying things that a whole lot of other people want to say, uh, and they're doing so in ways that um, make people think they're alone and isolated. It's what they do. I wrote a book on this, actually, called You Will Be Made to Care. It's one of the strategies that is being deployed out there by these people is they want you shut up and isolated, thinking you're all alone. Meanwhile, millions of Americans uh, share your views, and there's nothing wrong with your views, but uh, they make you and your family, and particularly your kids— think that you're all alone, and then they begin to twist and corrupt and silence. It's not a good, healthy system. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, it is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, them's the numbers. Now, as I do every year, the, the first hour, those of you who weren't here, in the first hour, I played the Star Spangled Banner. I have one more thing to play for you guys. Why I only do this if I'm on radio right before Independence Day, which I normally am. There are just two songs worth playing uh, in the spirit of our American Republic. The first being the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, the second is uh, that alternative uh, that if if for some reason they ever did reject the Star Spangled Banner, which they shouldn't, it's nonsense, uh, this should be uh, the new national anthem. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a wonderful version of the song. I'm not even going to tell you what song it is. You're just going to have to listen. Why? Because it's Independence Day. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His truth is marching on. beauty of the lilies Christ was born across the sea with the glory in his bosom that 
that transfigures you and me as he died to make men holy let us let us make men free can begin the program uh happy independence day to you i appreciate you being here this morning I know a lot of people are headed out on vacation uh, i myself uh will be taking a break uh for for a few days uh enjoying my family um what do we mean by the american revolution what do we mean by the american revolution do we mean the american war the revolution was effected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinion, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American revolution. That's John Adams writing in 1818. I, I want to spend a little more time on this in this hour, each hour today. Uh, in the next hour, the director of the CDC, uh, Robert Redenfield, is going to join me as well. Uh, but I, I want to spend a little bit on this. I want to read you uh, from some of what Bernard Balin wrote. So and I, I need to step back for a moment. If you have never read the ideological origins of the American Revolution, you should. In the 1950s, the prevailing sentiment of American scholars uh, post-World War II was that uh, the American Revolution was a revolution of the upper middle class mercantilists who wanted to, uh, in effect, continue to make money, and they ran a, essentially a propaganda campaign to lure people into their cause, revolt against Great Britain, and establish their trade routes and make money. And, and that was the prevailing sentiment among academic institutions that, that had already, after World War II, we're already jaded on the idea of Americanness. And it was Bernard Balin uh, writing in the 1960s. Uh, he produced this, uh, it is one of the best works, a winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the Bancroft Prize, uh, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. He wrote it in 1967. Bernard Balin, uh, one of the, the foremost scholars of uh, American history. I had to read this in um, in college. And what Balin did is he had the audacity to not just go back and read the pamphlets. Everyone could read the pamphlets. You could read Thomas Paine's pamphlets. You could read um, the, the, the pamphlets of the, the Pennsylvania farmer. You could read the writings of Jefferson and Adams and Franklin. You could read the, the, the Whig and the Tory writings of the day. You could read them all. But what of, what of the middle class? What of the poor? That we were the United States 
in the 1700s was highly literate, even among the poor. And there was no internet, there was no email, there was no radio, there was no TV, there were no talk show hosts. And they wrote letters to each other. Husbands to wives, wives to husband, parents to children, children to parents, friend to friend. And what Bernard Balin found is that this wasn't a mercantilist revolution. This was from the upper incomes to the lower incomes, an idea had galvanized them. And again, it, it goes back to the quote from John Adams writing after the war in 1818, what do we mean by the American Revolution? Do we mean the American War? The revolution was affected before the war commenced. The revolution was in the minds and hearts of the people, a change in their religious sentiments of their duties and obligations. This radical change in the principles, opinions, sentiments, and affections of the people was the real American Revolution. Here's what Balin wrote. It was an elevating, transforming vision, a new, fresh, vigorous, and above all, morally regenerate people rising from obscurity to defend the battlements of liberty and then in triumph standing forth, heartening and sustaining the cause of freedom everywhere. In light of such a conception, everything about the colonies and their controversy with the mother country took on a new appearance. Provincialism was gone. Americans stood side by side with the heroes of historic battles for freedom and with the few remaining champions of liberty in the present. What were once felt to be defects, isolation, institutional simplicity, primitiveness of manners, multiplicity of religions, weakness in the authority of the state, could now be seen as virtues not only by Americans themselves, but by enlightened spokesmen of reform, renewal, and hope wherever they might be in London coffee houses, in Parisian salons, in the courts of the German princes. The mere existence of the colonists suddenly becoming philosophy, teaching by example. Their manners, their morals, their way of life, their physical, social, and political condition were seen to vindicate eternal truths and to demonstrate as ideas and words never could the virtues of the heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers. But the colonists' ideals and words counted too, and not merely because they repeated as ideology the familiar utopian phrases of the enlightenment of English libertarianism. What they were saying by 1776 was familiar in a general way to reformers and Illuminati everywhere in the Western world, yet it was different. Words and concepts had been reshaped in the colonists' minds in the course of a decade of pounding controversy, strangely reshaped, turned in unfamiliar directions toward conclusions they could not of themselves clearly perceive. They found a new world of political thought as they struggled to work out the implications of their beliefs in the years before independence. It was a world not easily possessed. Often they withdrew in some confusion to more familiar ground, but they touched its boundaries and at certain points probed its interiors. Others later writing and revising the first state constitutions, drafting and ratifying the federal constitution and debating in detail exhaustively the merits of these efforts would resume the search for resolutions of the problems the colonists had broached before 1776. The critical probing of traditional concepts, part of the colonists' effort to express reality as they knew it and to shape it to ideal ends, became the basis of all further discussions of enlightened reform in Europe as well as in America. The radicalism the Americans conveyed to the world in 1776 was a transformed as well as a transforming force. It, it was. It was something significant. And this went from the upper echelons of American society to the lower tiers of society. This was not some revolution of 
commercial interests. This was a revolution of the mind. The American founding was not the founding of a country based on uh, we're here, it, it's blood and soil. It, it was totally a founding on ideas and ideals. They put them in the Declaration of Independence. They enshrined them within the American Constitution. Lord Chancellor Camden in 1770, in a speech in the House of Lords, declared that for some time he had beheld with silent indignation the arbitrary measures which were being pushed by the British ministry, that however he would no, uh, would do so no longer, but would openly and boldly speak his sentiments. In a word, he accused the British prime ministership of having formed a conspiracy against the liberties of their country. A series, this is uh, Balin writing now, a series of occurrences, many recent events, afford great, no, I'm sorry, this is a, a Boston town meeting to its representatives. A series of occurrences, many recent events, afford great reason to believe that a deep laid and desperate plan of imperial despotism has been laid and partly executed for the extinction of all civil liberty. The august and once revered fortress of English freedom, the admirable work of ages, the British constitution seems fast tottering into fatal and inevitable ruin. The dreadful catastrophe threatens universal havoc and presents an awful warning to hazard all if, uh, peradventure, we in these distant confines of the earth may prevent being totally overwhelmed and buried under the ruins of our most established rights. That's a Boston town hall meeting of the citizens, not the upper middle class, uh, but everybody. Balin writes, it is the meaning imparted to the events after 1763 by this integrated group of attitudes and ideas that lies behind the colonist rebellion. In the context of these ideas, the controversial issues centered on the question of parliaments, jurisdiction in America, acquired as a, a group uh, with overwhelming significance. The colonists believed they saw emerging from the welter of events during the decade after the Stamp Act a pattern whose meaning was unmistakable. They saw in the measure taken by the British government and in the actions of officials in the colonies something for which their peculiar inheritance of thought had prepared them only too well, something they had long conceived to be a possibility in view of the known tendency of history and the present state of affairs in England. They saw about them with increasing clarity, not merely mistaken or even evil policies violating the principles upon which liberty and freedom rested, but what appeared to be evidence of nothing less than a deliberate assault launched surreptitiously by plotters against liberty both in England and in America. The danger to America, it was believed, was in fact only the small, immediate, visible part of the greater whole whose ultimate manifestation would be the destruction of the English Constitution with all the rights and privileges embedded in it. This belief transformed the meaning of the colonist struggle, and it added an inner accelerator to the movement of opposition. For once assumed, it could not be easily dispelled. Denial only confirmed it, since what conspirators profess is not what they believe. The ostensible is not the real, and the real is deliberately maligned. It was this, the overwhelming evidence as they saw it, that they were faced with conspirators against liberty, determined at all costs to gain ends which their words dissembled, that was signaled to the colonists after 1763, and it was this above all else that in the end propelled them into revolution. It was distrust of the British state. It was not the rich. It was not a conspiracy to continue slavery in this country. It was not all of the various grievance mongers' grievances piled together uh, by a group of white men. It was the colonists from the New England down to Georgia, the rich to the poor, 
who together decided they needed to take action themselves to preserve the liberty they thought they were entitled as Englishmen under the English Bill of Rights. And because the king would not give it nor his government, they would have to take it themselves. You can read that in the Declaration of Independence, which I read in the first hour, that they had to dissolve the government to keep the government they thought they were entitled. They had to dissolve the very government that gave them their rights in order to preserve the rights that government gave them. That was the American Revolution. It was a revolution based on rights and ideas. It was not throwing off the old for something new. It was not up he upending society and tearing down statues and going woke. It was because they were belie they believed they were entitled to something and they were being denied that thing and they wanted it desperately. And the ideas trans class income. It was something they were willing to lay down their lives for. The woke mob marching in the streets today, tearing down statues of Ulysses S. Grant and, and throwing paint on George Washington are not half the character of the men who fought in the revolution. They are spoiled children who have taken the legitimate grievances of some and hijacked them into the illegitimate grievances of spoiled kids and they need to be restrained and they need to be ignored and they should not be given any credit. They are not on the same level of character or integrity as the founders of this country. This is the thing that really, and by the way, I'm very happy to take your phone calls, 877-973-7425. This is the thing that, that genuinely bugs me. Maybe it shouldn't bug me as much as it does, but it does. We've got legitimate grievances in this problem. You know, the, the founding fathers knew they were pushing problems out of the way uh, for their um, revolution and that they would have to deal with, slavery being one of them. Thomas Jefferson wrote about it. Others wrote about it. When we come back, I actually want to dive into some of what uh, Balin finds in his research and writes in his book about slavery in particular. We There are legitimate grievances in this country. And there are things that our founders, if they were here today, uh, they would be uh, they would be in pursuit of a better tomorrow for those things. But so many of the woke hipsters who are out there tearing down statues of our founding fathers and others, they don't really have grievances. They just want to be angry. They have not been put upon by society. They just want to pretend to have been put upon by society. It is it is not coincidental that uh, the woman who wrote the 1619 Project has a long history of racist sentiment uh, against uh, white people and believes bizarre things like uh, Africans discovered uh, the New World before Columbus and that the pyramids are proof of it in, in uh, the, the Aztec pyramids. And now she gets to rewrite American history according to her purposes, gets it all wrong, and the New York Times praises her and does it. Uh, there's paternalism for you, by the way. There is the ultimate in white paternalism, and she's profiting from it. Uh, these people pat her on her head for butchering American history, uh, turning it on its head, lying about it, rewriting it to suit her agenda. And they pat her on the head and say, oh, yeah, good, good girl, good girl. Yeah, let's make money off of your work now. And she gets it all wrong, and major historians on the left and the right come out and say, wait a second, this is wrong. This isn't actually real. Um, she gets this stuff wrong. We warned her, and they're, oh, no, 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 we're, we're going to go with it. 
Let's give her a Pulitzer for rewriting American history. Um, history from the, 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 the viewpoint of professional grievance mongers is what it is. There are, this country will be flawed because it is a nation founded by flawed sinners and now run by flawed sinners. But our flawed sinners who founded this country gave us an ideal that was not flawed, that we could and they could strive for, knowing we would never get there, but be perpetually in pursuit of it, always racing towards the sunrise of a better tomorrow. And we have allowed the grievance mongers who don't want to always be in perpetual pursuit of the better tomorrow sunrise to stand still and whine, to hold us back because they profit from the grievance, not from the healing. And we should stand against that and stand with the founders, committing ourselves again, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor to the ideal that all men are created equal and we are endowed by our creator with those unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is unfortunate that the New York Times and so much of the left would instead want to profit from the grievance, not from the cure. And to the extent they propose cures, it is to foster other grievances. It makes you wonder if they're doing it or if someone is pulling their strings to do it. Hello there. The phone number here is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, let us go to the phones. Eddie calling from Athens. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Morning. I enjoyed your first hour. We don't usually get to hear the first hour in Athens, but it was good. Uh, Thank you. I would have thought you were going to, I thought you were going to play Lee Greenwood song instead of a Battle Hidden Republic, but that was just me. I thought, okay, he's going to play that instead. <laughs> Second choice. But, uh, no, I think that one's was, overdone. If I'm honest about it, I, everybody plays that, so I never do. Right. I think uh, I, I, was, I was telling you, a screener there, that uh, that um, you have the First Amendment and the Second Amendment, but the most important amendment is property rights. That's what you were talking about in Downward Bar and Creator, is to have our being, to have our property and that was one of the things they were hoarding they were quartering soldiers and taxes and stuff like that during the time but the idea was it's property rights and through these uh riots that we're having now you see that property rights are totally ignored i mean the yeah, guy yeah, moved, I mean, you know in uh mississippi i think it was it was out on his yard protecting his property yeah missouri yes um it, missouri, yes there we go uh, the, the private property rights w was one of the big issues, which is why in, in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of the, the, the more liberal academics in the country decided it was really a mercantilist revolution and, and wasn't really about the ideals. Uh, but the property rights were one of the things that uh, they believed they were entitled to as, as Englishmen under the English Bill of Rights. Uh, that they were they were allowed they they were endowed by their creator and you know originally it was endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights among these are life liberty and property it was changed to pursuit of happiness but pursuit of happiness uh, inevitably uh, revolved around the idea that you should be able to uh, have the government out of your way to pursue happiness. You, you know, the left and the right have, have ideas of positive liberty and negative liberty. The, and the right, the conservative view, is negative liberty. Negative liberty is the government gets out of your way and you can be as successful as you possibly can. 
And positive liberty is the government uh, helps you uh, in some way be successful. Uh, the government gets out of the way and allows you to go find the, the, the cheapest health care you can in negative liberty. And, and in positive liberty, the government provides you your health care. So if you want to be a painter instead of having to go work for a living, uh, go for it. Uh, no, no disrespect to the painters out there uh, who do work for a living, but you get what I mean. I want to focus on something related to that. This again, again, you should get a copy of Bernard Balin's The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. Uh, and his central premise is that ideas actually did matter. This was a highly literate society of people across walks of life who debated the ideas of the Enlightenment. And in, in his uh, chapter six, The Contagion of Liberty, let me read you this. The American War is over. This is Benjamin Rush, by the way, writing in 1787. The American War is over, but this is far from being the case with the American Revolution. On the contrary, nothing but the first act of the great drama is closed. It remains yet to establish and perfect our new forms of government and to prepare the principles, morals, and manners of our citizens for these forms of government after they are established and brought to perfection. Now this is Balin writing. On such fundamental issues, representation and consent, the nature of constitutions and of rights, the meaning of sovereignty, and in such basic ways did the colonists probe and alter their inheritance of thought concerning liberty and its preservation. To conceive of legislative assemblies as mirrors of society and their voices as mechanically exact expressions of the people to assume and act upon the assumption that human rights exist above the law and stand as a measure of the law's validity to understand constitutions to be ideal designs of government and fixed limiting definitions of its permissible sphere of action and to consider the possibility that absolute sovereignty and government need not be the monopoly of a single all engrossing agency but the shared possession of several agencies each limited by the boundaries of the others, but all powerful within its own. To think in these ways, as Americans were doing before independence, was to reconceive the fundamentals of government and of society's relation to government. There were, to be sure, probing speculations, theories, by which a generation convinced of the importance of ideas in politics attempted to deal with the problems they faced. But they were not mere mental gymnastics. Not only did they provide the rational grounds of resistance to the authority of Parliament, but by 1776 they had become matters of the most immediate local urgency, for by then the colonies, independent states in all but name, had begun their extraordinary work of constitution writing. Up and down the still sparsely settled coast of British North America, groups of men, intellectuals and farmers, scholars and merchants, the learned and the ignorant, gathered for the purpose of constructing enlightened governments. During the single year 1776, eight states drafted and adopted constitutions. Two did so even before independence. Everywhere there were discussions of the ideal nature of government. Everywhere principles of politics were examined, institutions weighed, and practices considered. In these debates, which were but forerunners of discussions that would continue well into the 19th century until the political and social meaning of the American Revolution would be formally, more fully realized, were direct continuations of the discussions that had preceded independence. The same issues and the same terms were involved. Indeed, some of the most original pamphlets written in the entire revolutionary period appeared in the transition periods of, 19, of 1775 and 1776 and treat simultaneously as if they were a single undifferentiated set of problems, the constitutional questions of imperial relations and of the organization of the internal governments of the new states. 
the originality of these discussions of the nature of government and the uses of power were self-intensifying. Thinkers at each age, impelled by a spirit at once quizzically pragmatic and loftily idealistic, built upon the conclusions of their predecessors and grasped implications only vaguely since before. The movement of thought was rapid, irreversible, and irresistible. It spread past boundaries few had set out to cross into regions few wished to enter. How infectious the spirit of pragmatic idealism was, how powerful and dangerous the intellectual dynamism within it, and how difficult it was to plot and advance the direction of its spread had become clear well before independence. Institutions were brought into question and condemned that appeared to have little, if any, direct bearing on the immediate issues of the Anglo-American struggle, new and difficult problems beyond the range of any yet considered unexpectedly appeared. That's Balin writing in The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, what he found by reading the letters not just of the upper crust of American society at the time, but down to the middle and lower classes who were highly literate, writing letters to each other. And one of the issues that began to be discussed prior to the Declaration of Independence was what do we do about the slaves? No one had set out to question the institution of chattel slavery, this again, Balin, but by 1776, it had come under severe attack by writers following out the logic of revolutionary thought. The connection for those who chose to see it was obvious. Slavery was a central concept in 18th century political discourse, and the absolute political evil it appears in every statement of political principle, in every discussion of constitutionalism or legal right, in every exhortation to resistance. Can any power in this province, a Massachusetts polemicist asked in 1754, make slaves of any part of the British nation? Who would not choose to dine upon a turnip and be a freedman rather than flow in luxury and be a slave? It was the loss of attachment to a free constitution that had plunged Rome from the summit of her glory, quote, back into the black gulf of infamy and slavery. Tyrannical governments reduced people to, quote, a kind of slaves to the ministers of state. An ambitious ministry must be taught, quote, that the, any attempt to enslave us would be fruitless and impolitic. Those who are taxed without their own consent expressed by themselves or their representatives, John Dickinson wrote in supporting quotations from Penn and Camden, are slaves. We are taxed without our consent expressed by ourselves or our representatives. We are therefore slaves. It was not simply lurid rhetoric. Slavery as a political concept had specific meaning, which a later generation would lose. To 18th century Americans, it meant, as a newspaper writer put it in 1747, a force put upon humane nature by which a man is obliged to act or not to act according to the arbitrary will and pleasure of another. It meant, a later pamphleteer wrote, being wholly under the power and control of another as to our actions and properties. It meant the inability to maintain one's just property in material things and abstract rights, rights and things which a proper constitution guaranteed a free people. But symptoms and consequence of the disease in the body politic, it was the condition that followed the loss of freedom, where corruption classically had destroyed the desire and capacity of the people to retain their independence. And thus it became an issue even prior to the American Revolution. The American writers of the day began to question slavery. 
it was not all grasped at once. Uh, he, he writes, uh, Balin writes in his book, it, it wasn't all grasped at once, but gradually the contradiction came to be. How embarrassing the obvious discrepancy could be to enthusiastic libertarians was revealed early in the period. What could the Colonel Richard Bland mean, the Reverend John Cam demanded to know, by asserting that under an English government all men are born free? Does he mean that Virginia is not an enlightened government? Or that the slaves are not under it born slaves? Or that the said slaves are not men? It was an unanswerable argument. Few in the South wanted to engage the issue of slavery. A South Carolinian was writing in 1774 that the abolition of slavery would completely ruin the many American providence as well as the East Indian Islands. Even Few even of the most enlightened Virginians were willing to declare, as Jefferson did in instructions he wrote to his colony's delegation, that, quote, the rights of human nature are deeply wounded by this infamous practice. That's Thomas Jefferson writing to the Continental Congress, the Virginia delegation to the Continental Congress. The abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in those colonies where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. Patrick Henry said, the general inconvenience of living here without them rendering the freeing of slaves in the South impractical, but he could not ignore the contradiction in maintaining slavery, quote, at a time when the rights of humanity are defined and understood with precision in a country above all others fond of liberty. When an opportunity will be offered to abolish this lamentable evil, they must do it. Those are the founders of the country, the, the men who supposedly, the men who supposedly wanted to prop up this country to preserve slavery, according to the New York Times 1619 project, are the men who were writing that the existence of slavery in this new world contradicts the very desires of the American Revolution. And for the greater good, they must set it aside, they believed, to battle Great Britain and be freed. But in the words of, of, of Patrick Henry, when an opportunity will be offered to abolish this lamentable evil, they had to take it at a time when the rights of humanity are defined and understood with precision in a country above all others fond of liberty. He looked forward to a time when they could get rid of it. This is something you don't hear among the left. This is something they would have you believe wasn't a discussion among the American founders as they go out and want to tear down the statues of George Washington now or Thomas Jefferson, 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 Thomas Jefferson, who before the Revolutionary War, as Virginia delegates were headed to the Continental Congress, wrote, the rights of human nature are deeply wounded by this infamous practice and the abolition of domestic slavery is the great object of desire in those colonies where it was unhappily introduced in their infant state. That was Thomas Jefferson writing. And you don't hear that. They would revise it, the left would, and say these men were bad because the left's purpose is to undermine the very founding ideals of this country. Because you see, the American Revolution was a conservative revolution where people wanted the rights they thought they were already entitled to. And what the left wants is something new. They don't really know what it looks like, but they know it's not this. They, 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 don't, they don't know. They want equity, which is Marxist, not equality. 
They want distribution, redistribution. They think the deck is stacked against them. And instead of taking time and allowing uh, allowing businesses to fail, everybody's got to be propped up, but everything's got to be redistributed. In 1766, the Reverend Stephen Johnson of Lyme, Connecticut, preached on the general nature and consequence of enslaving measures and dilating on the iniquity of slavery and on its shocking ill effects and terrible consequences to both enslavers and enslaved, drew his illustrations from the Bible from ancient history, the oppression of Holland and the histories of France and of England under former popish reigns, but not from the life around him. He confined his application of these principles and illustrations to the impending calamities with threatness. He did not mention the enslavement of uh, Africans in America, John Dickinson, having defined taxation without representation as a state of the most abject slavery, declared he could not conceive of an idea of a slavery more complete, more miserable, more disgraceful than that of a people where justice is administered, government exercised, and a standing army made at the expense of the people and yet without the least dependent upon them. But by 1770, Samuel Cook was arguing from the pulpit that tolerating slavery, we, the patrons of liberty, have dishonored the Christian name and degraded human nature nearly to a level with the beast that perish, and devoted most of his text to the cause of our African slaves, pointing out God is no respecter of persons. He begged the assembled leaders of Massachusetts to take action. Benjamin Rush, one of the founders, wrote a sweeping condemnation of slavery in 1773, begging ye advocates for American liberty, rouse yourselves to espouse the cause of humanity and general liberty. Against a vice which degrades human nature, the plan of liberty is of so tender a nature that it cannot thrive long in the neighborhood of slavery. Remember the eyes of all Europe are fixed upon you to preserve an asylum for freedom in this country after the last pillars of it are fallen in every other quarter of the globe. And by 1774, across New England and even the middle colonies into Virginia, the colonists who were revolting against England said, if we revolt against England to not be slaves to England, we too must free the slaves here. And yet you would never know that by reading the grievance mongers of today who are out there throwing paint on statues of George Washington. Speaking of grievance mongers out there, uh, Deloitte is under fire. De- Deloitte, uh, the, the management consulting firm, they're under fire for uh, firing a recent Harvard grad who had uh, just gotten a job with Deloitte. Uh, and and people are just upset. How? Why would you fire? Well... Uh, Clara Yanover, uh, on a recent TikTok, you know, TikTok, y'all keep your kids away from TikTok. You should keep your kids away from social media in general. I mean, you see the way people are having their lives ruined for things they did a decade ago. I mean, look at the, the Boeing guy today who lost his job, uh, for writing in the 1980s about women in the military unfavorably of the idea. He, he, he resigned, I guess we should say the mob came for him. Uh, Clara Janover actually went on TikTok and said she would stab those with the nerve to say all lives matter. I know this is what Trump supporters wanted because standing up for Black Lives Matter puts me in a place online to be seen by millions of people. The job that I worked really hard to get and meant a lot to me just called me and fired me because of everything. Trump supporters took my job away from me. I've gotten death threats, rape threats, violent threats, and 
it's okay, but now it's just like my future is entirely compromised because Trump supporters have decided to come for my life. I'm too strong for you. I'm too strong for any of you. All lives matter racist Trump supporters. It sucks, but it doesn't suck as much as systemic racism. And then said that Deloitte was coward, cowardly. They were, y'all, she called for, she said she wanted to stab people. People she disagreed with politically, she wanted to stab them, and somehow she's the victim. That's the problem here. What does it mean to be a victim anymore in this country? Anybody can get on social media and do the woe is me thing. You're not a victim. You wanted to stab people, and now you're suffering consequences for it. They want everybody to suffer consequences for things they've said and done except for them. The founders of this country would be appalled at these woke kids out there. Uh, My goodness gracious. Like some of the, so it, it, there's a scandal today. If you haven't heard in Silicon Valley, there's apparently a an app where people can chime in and, and it's audio recordings. And it was Silicon Valley uh, venture capitalists who are lamenting the negative coverage from the media that they get and how uh, that, that idiot at the New York Times, Taylor Lawrence or whatever her name is, the one who curled up in the fetal position and cried over the Tom Cotton op-ed, uh, that, that she is using her position as a reporter to shame a female in technology. For years, you know, it is actually kind of funny that everyone laments the lack of women CEOs in Silicon Valley. There is a woman CEO in Silicon Valley. She runs the, the luggage company away. And the media, the people in the media hate her guts and have been out to destroy her. Apparently, you're, they want a female CEO, but only one that also agrees with them. I mean, this is part of the problem we have in Silicon Valley right now is is you're, you're not allowed to disagree. There can be no sit. Now, this woman, in fairness, in a way, has said some terrible things. But really what it is about is, is she clearly isn't down with the woke agenda and they're out to get her because of it. It's It's amazing to me to watch these people uh, turn on their own over stuff like this. It's not not unexpected. Um, when we come back, I, I'm, I'm going to try not to get mad again. Now, at the bottom of the next hour, uh, the uh, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, Robert Redfield, is going to join me. Um, but when we come back, I, I'm going to try not to make y'all mad, but it gets me mad. I need to go back to the story I talked about from yesterday about the child porn guy, um, because there's a larger point. While I'm spending today talking about the American Revolution and, and the founding and, and the men of the revolution, the men with chests, uh, as C.S. Lewis would probably call them, uh, we need to discuss what exactly it is that's going on um, out there with people in society, particularly in institutions, refusing to take responsibility. We, we got to talk about this. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I am going to go back to a story that is already raising my blood pressure just thinking about me. Um, mm, I'm going to get mad again. This infuriates me. A Georgia man sentenced to a thousand years in prison is out on parole after seven years. Uh, He is a uh, former Troop County Commissioner. That's the LaGrange area. The judge who sentenced him to a thousand years in prison 
said that he is probably, quote, the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. The district attorney who prosecuted him said that he, this man, uh, his name is Peter Mallory. And that uh, Peter Mallory has a compulsion to child pornography. It wasn't just a choice. It was a compulsion, according to the district attorney who prosecuted him. Peter Mallory was convicted in 2012, and the Georgia Court of Appeals just ruled that his thousand-year prison sentence was constitutional. He's 72 years old. According to the uh, Board of Pardon Parole, the reason he can be let out of prison is uh, because he has done performance incentive credits, performance incentive credits. And that allows him out of jail after seven years. A man with a compulsion, let me, and my apologies before I even get into this. But Peter Mallory collected 26,000 pictures and videos of children being tortured and raped and otherwise sexually abused. That's what Peter Mallory did. He also, Peter Mallory did, installed cameras in his office to spy on women in his office, young women in his office. And he also tried to destroy evidence. He knowingly, this is from the district attorney, he knowingly and intentionally sought out, gathered, downloaded, and saved images and videos of children being raped, children being tortured, and children being sexually exploited. He was sentenced to a thousand years in prison, and our Board of Pardon Paroles has let him out. I have since heard from multiple judges that the Georgia Board of Pardon Paroles is broken and needs repair, that it is unaccountable and is prone to make mistakes and can't seem to get its act together. I want to give you the names of the members of the Georgia Board of Pardon and Paroles. Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, and David Herring. Those are the board members of the Georgia Board of Pardon and Paroles. Let me read for you how they describe themselves. What has made Georgia's board such a leader is the professionalism of its members, their collective experience and commitment to criminal justice ideals keeps Georgia's board continually attuned to the long-term as well as short-term public safety solutions. That is the Georgia 
Board of Pardon and Paroles, which is let out of prison after seven years of a thousand-year sentence. The man a judge described as the most prolific collector of child pornography in the entire world. And no member of the legislature has come forward to call for the board to resign. The governor has said nothing. The Speaker of the House has said nothing. The Lieutenant Governor has said nothing. The judge is outraged. The District Attorney is outraged. I've heard from judges at the highest levels of the state who are outraged, and there's nothing they can do about it. The judiciary cannot stop the Board of Pardon of Paroles from doing this. And they're outraged about it. But there's been no public denunciation of these board members. It's as if everyone will ignore this and this will go away. And this is the problem that we as a society actually are facing in this country. We no longer have adults governing us. We don't have, you see, adults take responsibility and we don't have people willing to take responsibility. What we have here, uh, Terry Bernard, Brian Owens, James Mills, Jacqueline Bunn, and David Herring are bureaucrats hiding behind a bureaucratic system. Their statement was actually that, well, he had performance incentives credits and under our rules, we could let him out of jail. So we did. It's like interviewing John Bolton the other day. When I interviewed John Bolton the other day, why would you write this book? If you knew the president of the United States, my question to him, if, if you knew the president of the United States was turning a blind eye to concentration camps in China, why was that not enough for you to resign? Well, you weren't walking in my shoes, so, so you, you, you can't really judge me. So he was per, he wants us to judge the president without us walking in the president's shoes, but we can't judge him. He spent multiple pages in his book talking about the Chinese concentration camps that the president turned a blind eye to, and yet that wasn't enough to get him to quit. He was perfectly fine. And then he thought it was so bad, instead of helping shape an impeachment trial against the president, so, well, I was distracted at the time, wasn't really paying attention. By the time I was paying attention, it was too late for me to be able to do anything. But buy my book that I got a $2 million advance for. We don't have grown-ups anymore in this country willing to take responsibility and to stand up and do anything. You got a president of the United States who can't even be clear on what his policy is in, in this crisis. He's abdicated other people, and then when he doesn't like what they do, he passively, aggressively criticizes them. You got Democrats out there who want to muddy the message on treatment for a virus because they can use it to attack the president of the United States. You've got Democrats in the United States Senate who aren't even willing to sign on to a simple statement that says mob violence is wrong. You've got protesters who are willing to tear down statues and a New York Times willing to rewrite history so that they don't lose their heads to the mob when their building is built on the land stolen from Indians by Dutch settlers. Everyone wants to nurse grievances. No one wants to take responsibility. No one anymore wants to even say two words. I'm sorry. No one wants to apologize when they've messed up. No one wants to take ownership for their actions. No one wants to do the things that grown-ups should do. No one wants to do the things that responsible people should do. 
It's all grievance mongering. It's a failure of leadership and a failure of institutions. It is no wonder that people in this country can look on the experts who tell you to wear a mask and say these people don't really know what they're talking about. Because the experts aren't willing to come out and acknowledge that they've made mistakes in the past, and they're not willing to make it, acknowledge it because they know other people will play up the mistakes and, and won't exercise any level of grace. So if they say, yeah, you know what, we shouldn't have told you earlier not to wear a mask, but now we really want you to. We're sorry we told you earlier, but here's why. Who's going to believe them anyway? When the president comes out and suggests hydroxychloroquine could be a treatment because multiple studies came forward from Europe and said it could, the media denounced him and ridiculed him. You had Chris Cuomo on television denouncing the president for suggesting it. Meanwhile, he's at home with a wife who believes that the moon was elevating his temperature, taking a quinine, which is a hydroxychloroquine-like substance, and escaping his quarantine, getting exposed by neighbors, and then pretending to, to, to come out dramatically from his quarantine when he'd already been out of his quarantine. And CNN seal clapping uh, the, the 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 ridiculous little incestuous interviews between Chris and Andrew Cuomo as if it was some great thing where they never asked him a tough question. Andrew Cuomo, you got uh, the deaths in New York City overwhelming the rest of the nation, but the media would much prefer to fixate on the uh, states run by governors of swing states so they can make it a partisan point in November instead of just telling us the news. The media's got to be in la resistance against the president so nobody believes the media anymore. We don't have a adults anymore we got whiny ass little kids running this country on the left and the right no one wants to own up to mistakes no one wants to say i'm sorry no one wants to say i screwed up and when you come calling and say why did you do this well the rules allowed me we just followed the rules we just followed the book well then are the rules wrong do we need to revise the rules here in georgia a man who was sentenced to a thousand years in prison has been let out of prison after seven years. A man called the most prolific collector of child pornography on the entire planet. And the statement from the Georgia Board of Pardon and Paroles is that, well, we just followed the law, where the rules, we follow the, it's not even the law, it's their own rules. How are the rules right if that's the case? And no one's going to hold them accountable because, you know, this is this is the key to understanding the state of American society right now and why nobody trusts institutions. Because the people you elect create institutions to make the decisions for the people you elect so the people you elect don't have to make them. The people you elect create bureaucracies to make decisions that the people you elect don't ever have to worry about defending and can rail against knowing that they will get reelected and continue creating the bureaucracies to make the decisions they actually want made but are too scared to make because they don't want to be held accountable for making them knowing that they're unpopular but they think it's better for you. That's what's happening here. This board of pardons and paroles has created and maintained these five people. Nathan Deal appointed all of them. They're, they're on the board of pardon and paroles here in Georgia. They let out this child predator. Sentenced to a thousand years in prison. After seven years, he's let out. And they get to hide behind the rules. And, and the elected officials aren't saying anything. They're just trusting the system.
Maybe the system is broken. You know why the system is broken in, in American society? And you know why some of the grievances out there are so legitimate of, of people, Some, many of whom are taking advantage of it. Some of them have legitimate grievances. You know why? It is because we elect people to do things in this country, and they abdicate their responsibility to unelected people who have no incentive to actually do the right thing and then hide behind the rules and say, well, the system let us do it or the system said. You know, what's so interesting, what, what is so interesting about this, I've been spending time about Bernard Balin and his book, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, and how a lot of the stuff that the, the, the woke revisionists of American history are telling you wasn't true. And one of the interesting things he said, one of the interesting things he wrote is how not having a strong government but one diffuse, one that relied on local government, had originally looked weird and odd and ineffective. And then in the American Revolution, turned out to be that that's what they wanted. That was the ideal. That's how they structured it. Limiting definitions of permissible spheres of action. And it was so unheard of and so extraordinary. And now what we've done is we have created bureaucrats to re-strengthen government in ways that prevent the elected people from ever having to make the tough decisions. And they never have to be accountable for it. And they never have to say, I'm sorry. And they never have to resign. When was the last time you saw a politician screw up and apologize and resign? It doesn't happen very often anymore because they know they can get away with it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, that actually speaks more to the character of the people than it does to the bureaucrats and the politicians because the politicians and the bureaucrats know they can get away with it because you're ultimately going to get distracted, do something else, and give them a pass. We have become far too distracted by insignificant things in this country. And it's starting to show. A listener just sent me this. Uh, I've been scanning it. Uh, man, it reminds me when I start skinning, skin, uh, skimming stuff like this, just how how quickly uh, the commercial break is. Deb Perlman, uh, Smitten Kitchen, uh, has a piece in the New York Times. Last week, I received an email from my children's principal sharing some of the first details about plans to reopen New York City schools this fall. The message explained that the city's Department of Education, following federal guidelines, will require each student to have 65 square feet of classroom space. Not everyone will be allowed in the building at once. The upshot is that my children will be able to physically attend school one out of every three weeks. At the same time, many adults, at least the lucky ones that have held on to their jobs, are supposed to be back at work as the economy reopens. What is confusing to me is that these two plans are moving forward apace without any consideration of the working parents who will be ground up in the gears when they collide. Let me say the quiet part out loud. In the COVID-19 economy, you're allowed only a child or a job. Why isn't anyone talking about this? 
Why are we not hearing a primal scream so deafening that no plotting policy can be implemented without addressing the people buried by it? Why am I, a food blogger best known for such hits as the all-butter really flaky pie dough and the I want chocolate cake cake, sounding the alarm on this? I think it's because when you're homeschooling all day and not performing the work you were hired to do until the wee hours of the morning and do it on repeat for 106 days, not that anyone's counting, you might be a little bit too fried to funnel your rage effectively. For months, I've been muttering about this in group texts and secret Facebook groups for moms and masked encounters. When I bump into a parent friend on the street, we all ask one another why we aren't making more noise. The consensus is that everyone agrees this is a catastrophe, but we're too bone tired to raise our voices above a groan, let alone scream through a megaphone. Every single person confesses burnout, despair, feeling like they're losing their mind, knowing in their gut that this is untenable. It should be obvious, but a non-negotiable precondition of getting back to normal is that families need a normal to return to as well. But as soon as you express this, the conversation quickly gets clouded with tangential and irrelevant arguments that would get you kicked off any school debate team. But we don't even know if it's safe to send kids back to school is absolutely correct, but it's not the central issue here. The sadder flip side, the friend who told me that if their school reopens, her children are going back whether it's safe or not because she can't afford not to work, edges closer. Why do you want teachers to get sick isn't my agenda either. But it's hard to imagine that a system in which each child will spend two weeks out of every three being handed off among various caretakers only to reconvene in a classroom infinitely increases the number of potential virus-carrying interactions, protects a teacher more than a consistent pod of students week in and out with minimized external interactions. You shouldn't have had kids if you can't take care of them as comically troll-like, but has come up so often, one might wonder if you're supposed to educate your children at night, or perhaps you should have been paying for some all-age daycare backup that sat empty while kids were at school in case the school you were paying taxes to keep open that requires by law that your children attend abruptly closed for the year. Why aren't you enjoying the extra quality time with your kid? Lays bare what it really simmers below the surface, a retrograde view that maybe one parent, they always mean the mom, shouldn't be working, that doing so is bad for children, that it's selfish to pursue financial gains or solvency, as working parents would tell you. It is a sentiment so deeply woven into our cultural psyche that making the reasonable suggestion that one shouldn't have to abandon a career or livelihood if offices reopen before schools, daycares, and camps do is viewed as a chance to re-deliberate this. It is not. And you're off the debate team, too. I've heard from parents who have the luck of a grandparent who can swoop in or the deep pockets for a full-time nanny or a private tutor for their child when schools are closed. That all sounds enviable, but it would be absurd to let policy be guided by people with cushioning. If you have the privilege to opt out of the workforce and wish to, enjoy it, but don't wield it as a stick to poke others with because far more people are being forced to opt out this year and will never professionally or financially recover. I resent articles that view the struggle of working parents this year as an emotional concern. We are not burned out because life is hard this year. We're burned out because we're being rolled over by the wheels of an economy that has bafflingly declared working parents inessential. There I am hearing from a lot of people like this, and she has given voice to it. When does life go back to normal and what must we do to get it back to normal? These are the questions I want to ask the head of the Centers for Disease Control. He's going to be joining me next, Richard Redfield uh, from the Centers for Disease of Disease Control and Prevention. Coming on to talk about the state of play with the virus, what we can do to try to get it to go away, and what hope do we have on the horizon? 
Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Glad to have you with me. Uh, I want to dispense with formalities here and get straight to a very important guest joining me today to talk about uh, COVID-19 and the situation in the United States. That would be the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. Robert Redfield. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. How are you? Very good. Thanks for having me, Eric. It, what, just out of the gate, um, right now, with uh, it looks like we've got uh, cases going up in the country and uh, across the board now. I saw data today. It looks like uh, we may be seeing spikes again in New York and New Jersey. Uh, how do you view the situation right now? Well, Eric, clearly we're seeing an increase in cases in a variety of jurisdictions. And, you know, it's not just the case number that, um, really is the key to me. It's also that the percent of individuals that are being tested in a number of jurisdictions, particularly Florida, Texas, Arizona, California, um, are going up. Right now we have, we're back to where Texas and Arizona is having close to 20% of everyone tested positive, and we've gotten that down under 10%. So we really are having a, an increase in number of infections. What's different about it is that now the infections are largely in younger individuals under the age of 45. The average age now of individuals being diagnosed has dropped from, you know, close to 50 now to in the mid 30s. Um, so we are seeing increased cases in several states. We're seeing increased hospitalizations. Only in Arizona have we seen increased deaths right now. The death toll still seems to be holding, um, but it's a significant event, and this is why it's so important, particularly this weekend. That we get the message out, like on your show and others, and the, the importance for the all of us to uh, be in this together and 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 be responsible. We have a powerful weapon. We're not defenseless against this virus. That weapon, you know, right now is not a vaccine. That weapon, which is very powerful, is just social distancing, a face mask, and hand washing. Well, let me ask you about the face mask uh, because early on, it, I, my listeners would yell at me because I've been telling people to wear masks that. Early on, public health officials were saying don't wear masks, and uh, they feel like there's a mixed message. I, I understand uh, from a number of people in government it had more to do with the supply chain and needing first responders to have them. Uh, but it, it, could you talk about the the effectiveness of wearing masks in public? Yeah, clearly the masks are extremely effective. And again, you know, part of the messaging and what we have to do with the public is we're trying to use data and science to drive our messaging. And, and back when, when the Surgeon General recommended against the face mask, as you said, trying to make sure the N95s really got to those that were highest risk of hospital workers that working in the ICU, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we thought we were dealing with a pathogen that when it infects humans cause symptoms. And what we learned in early March was, well, that's not, in fact, always the case that this virus can actually cause disease and remain asymptomatic. And a significant number of individuals will be asymptomatic, particularly among the young. We've seen it between 20 and as high as 80% of people infected actually don't have symptoms. We do have science that face coverings can decrease the droplets of a variety of different respiratory pathogens, including this one. And so once we understood that many of us that might be infected don't even know it, that's when CDC strongly came out with a recommendation for us to wear face coverings, you know, for me to protect you, for me to protect you, because I may not know if I'm infected. Uh, and it really was important then, and it's critically important now.
And and it, just to clarify here for some people, because I know I've gotten this question before, that uh, there seemed to be is some confusion. But a, asymptomatic people, people who never will get symptoms, even though they have it, uh, can still infect other people who in turn then actually do get symptoms? That's right, Eric. And we've actually got studies to show the amount of virus that you produce in your upper respiratory tract is independent of whether you get symptoms or not. So asymptomatic people don't necessarily have less virus. They actually have the same amount of virus as the symptomatic people. So therefore, they're very important in the transmission cycle. And moving forward, I mean, we've got the the great debate now on on letting kids go back to school. Uh, Do they have to stay home? Uh, Where do you see us headed? I mean, in the trajectory we're on versus where you would like us to be? Yeah, I, I think that it's really important that we get both K through 12 and higher education back. Yeah, I think it's one of the big prices that have been paid by the outbreak today, besides the hospitalizations and the you know very sad mortality that we've seen. CDC never recommended closing schools, and this these recommendations were largely operationalized by local jurisdictions. So we just put out our guidance for K through 12 and higher education. Um, to try to work with jurisdictions to reopen those those schools safely. But I really do think it's really important to begin to get uh, both K-12 through and higher education back operational. A variety of different options to m- make sure we do it uh, safely, um, but I really do believe it's really important um, for a variety of reasons that we get uh, uh, both our youth and our collegiate uh, learners back to school. What about uh, moving forward with the, the the virus between potential treatment, vaccines, and the like? Uh, what do you see on the horizon that, that's coming that may shape us as we move into everybody's been talking about a second? Well, I guess I guess I should start with, uh, do you see the second wave coming or, or the potential for a second wave? And if so, what will we have in our arsenal of tools to, to help us along the way? Yeah, I you know, I, I don't know exactly how much control we're going to get between now and October. We're obviously fighting hard to get that. As you know, we're, we saw over 50,000 cases the other day. And, uh, you know, I don't, I think it's very possible that we'll still see significant cases on a daily basis. So whether we'll actually have a break or not, or just go into the fall, the fall is going to be very complicated. Uh, we're going to have influenza and COVID. Um, we really need uh, to uh, do everything we can to prepare for that. Uh, one of the most important things I've asked is for the American public to make sure this year they're going to get the influenza vaccine. Uh, only about 47% of the American public get vaccinated the flu. This is going to be critical because if we have a bad flu season and the COVID season, it could really stress the health system of this nation. So I'm really asking people to embrace flu vaccine with confidence. But clearly, we're making great advancements in therapeutics. Uh, we have uh, obviously an antiviral now, radesivir, that works. Uh, to de- de- at least decrease the hospitalization time. Um, it's been recently shown that steroids, dexamethasone, can have a major impact on survival. Uh, there's large studies right now that should be coming out in the next weeks that taking the blood, the plasma from people that recovered from COVID and doing what we call plasma phoresis and then using their antibodies to give to sick people, those trials in over, I think, twenty to 30,000 people uh, are now under final analysis, and I think it's very likely that they'll find within that group 
some parameters where that can actually be therapeutic. And it's two, uh, several major companies now, I know Eli Lilly and uh, Regeneron in particular, are actually making what we call monoclonal antibodies that have been selected because they can neutralize this virus. And those clinical trials are starting this month. So I anticipate therapeutics, particularly with the use of antibodies, uh, either from the, those who recovered or from the industry that's made them, they're going to really have an impact on, on therapeutics. I think there's high likelihood that that armamentarium that we now have with radesivir and steroids will, will be increased in the fall. The vaccine, uh, it's an all-out push. As you know, you've heard about it, Operation Warp Speed. Uh, there's multiple candidates now that have been selected for acceleration. Uh, I want to just tell the American people the acceleration warp speed is not that we're cutting corners for safety or scientific integrity. What we're doing is normally when a vaccine goes for phase one, then it does a phase two, and then it was phase two, the company decides if it wants to go to phase three, and then when it finishes the phase three, if the FDA approves it, then they start to manufacture. So it could be another year before they actually can give the, the vaccine after they've already proven it works. What we're doing in this situation is we're actually pre-purchasing the vaccine at the moment the phase three starts so that if the phase three determines efficacy, that vaccine will be available at the time the FDA approves it. So I think it's, uh, you know, no one can promise, uh, you know, science has its own timeline, but I can tell you there's a real possibility that we will have the first uh, vaccine available before the first of the year. Wow. Uh, that is encouraging. Well, all of that is encouraging. Uh, before I let you go, I, I, I got two questions for you. The, the first of which is, there have been, since the virus started spreading in the country, a lot of people who just don't want to believe the data that the, the death toll is overinflated, that that it, we I hear all the time, I'm still hearing that, you know, someone uh, died of a hangnail and they listed it as COVID-19. How, how, as the head of the CDC, how, how do you respond to stuff like this? Well, I, we're very rigorous with our public health colleagues. And, and sadly, I think... Um, this virus has actually caused the death of you know, over 120,000, 126,000 Americans, and probably will uh, have others in the weeks ahead. So first and foremost, um, I think this is uh, um, rigorous data that really works hard to attribute um, the cause of death to COVID or the cause of death say you happen to have an asymptomatic COVID infection and you died from a heart attack, a heart attack. So I'm, I'm confident that our data is as, as solid as it can be with the caveats that I've continued to ask and will work for substantial investment so that we can modernize our public health data system in America. But unfortunately, uh, I think each of those deaths that we recorded uh, were deaths that were a consequence of this virus. And well, last question for you in, in related to this on this topic, a lot of people out there uh, say that uh, if you put on a mask somehow you're, you're, you're submitting to the government and it's not going to do any good. And I know we touched on this a little bit, but just to, to wrap up, I, I wanted to let you reemphasize your views on wearing a mask. Yeah, I think it's so important. This is not a political statement. This is a public health statement. And I think as the last couple of weeks said, really reinforce the American public. If we all 
don't go all in on the use and embracement uh, with vigilance of the powerful weapons we have of social distancing, face masks, and hand washing, we'll continue to see substantial spread of this virus. I'm trying to get the millennials and the Generation X to really, to really, really reflect that they have a collective responsibility. Uh, we all have a collective responsibility, but they in particular, that's the group where the infection rate's gone up substantially. Uh, and I will say that we have very good evidence in household transmission studies that if you actually do what I said, social distance, wear a face mask and wash your hands, transmission is prevented. And, you know, I asked uh, some of the young leaders in those generations that know how to use digital technology and text message. I always say that when I call my kids on the phone, they don't answer. But if I text them, I get an answer in a minute. <laughs> we need to use that technology to really change the narrative that, you know, the way you contribute to your country right now, your community, your family, is to embrace these social distancing measures. In the First World War, we were asking these young men and women to do something else. Second World War, we were asking them to do something else. Right now in the war against COVID, I'm asking them to be an example, to embrace these weapons that we have, put them to use, and let the transmission of the COVID virus, you know, if they get infected, it stops with them. It stops with them. We, and this is really the appeal, and particularly this weekend with the 4th of July coming up, uh, we really need people to maintain distance, to wear face masks. It should be a badge of honor. Please, you know, please, please, please uh, get this out of the realm of saying there's, it's some type of political symbolism. It's a public health effort, and it's a great sign of individual responsibility for your family, for your community for your church, and for your nation. Dr. Redfield, thank you very much for taking time out today to speak to us. I really do appreciate it, sir, and thank you for all the work you're doing. Thanks a lot, Eric. Thanks for having me. God bless you. Absolutely. You too. Dr. Robert Redfield, he is the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, here in Georgia, in Atlanta. Uh, we'll be back. Take a quick time out. Hello there. It is 53 after the hour. <sighs> Every second that goes by, I get closer to vacation. Um, I've got my brisket on the smoker right now on my rec tech so that I can take it to the beach. I, I got a pork loin I'm putting on the rotisserie so we'll be able to have sandwiches, not go to the grocery store. We'll be all set. Right now, I'm going to go to the phones. 877 ah, No, well, it looks like uh, my call screener tells me that Rooster in Athens is going to be the last caller today. Rooster, how are you? Happy Independence Day. Yes, indeed. And you talking about brisket, I'm picking one tomorrow. Fantastic. So, yep. So uh, you were talking about them, uh, the folks up in New York setting into where the kids come to school one week out of three, yet yeah. they want everybody to go back to work. I kind of feel like this may actually be kind of a push towards socialism. You know, stay home, we'll pay you more to be on unemployment. And, you know, you know, we we want to teach your kids, but, you know, we'd much better stay at home with your kids to stay at home two weeks out of three. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm glad you said that because I, I absolutely fundamentally think the left is trying to take advantage of the situation w with some of their policies. This is one of the the, the, the things I've been noting now for a while um, in the, the aftermath of the George Floyd uh, situation and uh, the rest of it. The, the left continues to pursue policies 
that they've always pursued and are now, in fact, uh, advancing in such a way that whatever the crisis is, they say this is what we need. So for COVID-19, we need universal socialist health care. We need universal basic income. Uh, We need to keep people at home. We need to keep the government going. For racial injustice, we need universal socialist health care. We need to keep people at home. We need a a guaranteed basic income. Uh, We need more money for public schools. You you know, the public schools have plenty of money. They just choose to use it on deputy uh, uh, junior superintendents and the like. The left is not going to let this crisis go to waste. Um, and, and, you know, I, I got to look, I know I'm, I'm making some of you mad. I am. And, and here comes Robert Redfield. By the way, Robert Redfield, do you know, Robert Redfield, is the uh, head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, who was on with me, uh, is routinely attacked by the left. For being anti-science. He's a medical doctor. Uh, he was an AIDS researcher, um, disease specialist. Do you know why he is routinely attacked? Because he's a believing Christian, practicing, committed Christian. And he's been attacked by health reporters in this country for the New York Times and others uh, on the grounds that because he's a believing Christian, he should not be put in charge of anything related to science. And one of the things that the uh, that the the Trump administration has been doing is sending Redfield out to conservative radio shows to try to reassure conservatives that this is not some sort of government plot or this is not made up uh, and that this is a real situation, that it's not political posturing and that people need to wear masks. Uh, I mean, and. When you've got the head of the CDC out there now, a Trump-appointed head of the CDC who the left can't stand because he's a Christian, telling people it's not about political posturing, that we now know the data has been updated, uh, and the data does show with this virus now. Because remember, back in February, the Surgeon General was actually tweeting out from his account that uh, don't you don't need to wear a mask in public, that there's no evidence that masks will stop COVID-19 from spreading. Well, that was February. We're now on July 3rd, and there's actually ample evidence that masks do prevent. Uh, You've got to be willing to update with a brand new virus as the data comes out daily. I had the epidemiologist Laurel Bristow on the other day talking about how there's just a flood of research information coming out on a daily basis that it's hard to keep up with. Um, You've got to, in some way, uh, rush out and and update the data. And the researchers are updating the data, but the American public are so overwhelmed with it, they themselves are not mentally updating the data. And, and in, in February, they were saying masks wouldn't prevent the spread. We've now had inordinate numbers of studies showing that, yes, actually the masks do help. So it's up to you, though, to do the right thing. Do you want college football or not? I don't want to end on that note. I want to end on this note. 244 years ago, The founders of this country pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to build a better union than what they had to secure the rights and liberties they thought they had but had been denied. It is upon us to commit ourselves to the views and values of our founders, to to stand up for liberty and responsibility and a commitment to the cause to continue to ever pursue a more perfect union. And you can do that in small ways and good in your local community by being a better neighbor and being committed to the needs of your own community. And I wish you all a wonderful Independence Day, and I'll talk to you when I get back.